Hello and welcome to this Unheard Short. I am delighted to say I am joined today by a very special guest, Graham Archer. Hello. And also, of course, by Peter Franklin. Hi, Charlie. So the first piece, uh, Graham, that we are going to discuss is called How Politics is Poisoning the Truth. And I guess it's centred around the Covington Boys incident, but is obviously about a much broader theme um, around kind of identity politics and sort of our rush to judgment. And that will also then link to the second piece, uh, which we are going to touch on, uh, which is called This Age of Semiotics is Breaking Us. So Graham, first of all, the piece on the Covington Boys incident in America, why did you decide you wanted to write about that for us? Because of my upbringing, I hate bullying I think is one of the worst evils uh, civilised societies can tolerate and and when I looked I was just flicking through Twitter and you couldn't help um, notice uh, you know I I didn't know anything about it until I saw it on social media I thought the language and the the style that was being used was a form of bullying I could see journalists saying print the name of these um, children vulgar language I want want to ruin their, their lives so I dug in further and I found uh, there's a quote from a journalist I I think she's at BuzzFeed I didn't know that I read it Um, she said um, what these children had done she took what they had done and then she wrote it it felt to me like the opening of a novel rather than news reporting you know there was always one of them in every class I don't remember the exact four words but she took this specific incident uh, and used it to say ultimately that white men have power and they use it as a form of abuse and I thought oh god this is wrong on so many levels because I looked her up and found she was a journalist with 70 odd thousand readers and I thought she is using her position to bully somebody she doesn't know worse than that she's um, using it to denigrate millions of white men that she'll never know and never meet it, it just felt like a, it felt like a, an act of bullying the whole response to the media. Um, if I'm really honest with you, Charlie, and I shouldn't admit this, I thought very hard about writing the piece because I am by nature timid and I was uh, nervous about what would happen to me on social media if I wrote, I think this is wrong. And I want to come back to the response you did get because some of it affirmed the kind of problem that we're seeing at the moment. But um, just for anyone who isn't familiar with uh, the incident, I'm sure nearly everyone will be, but um, it was a group of Catholic uh, schoolboys um, who had gone on an anti-abortion march. um, And um, there was an incident with a Native American who effectively went up to the boys and were kind of banging a a drum and and chanting. And there was a clip on social media that um, was interpreted as the young Catholic boy uh, being racist in some way. Yes, because... It looked from the edited clip as if he was standing in this guy's way, sort of blocking his path and sort of dominating him. Whereas the longer clip... And smirking, that was the big thing that seemed to capture the imagination. Yes, and but the longer clip showed that this guy had actually gone into this crowd of of the boys. You don't need to watch the entire eight hours to find that that summary narrative that was ricocheting around social media was was factually incorrect. Yeah. So to yeah. get from what was evident on a short viewing to there was always one of them in every class who flirted with the teacher to improve his grades, 
uh, and I, you know, that, it's unfair to pick on that journalist. She was by far from being the most uh, violent in her response to it, suggested to me that this was a narrative that was ready to go. It didn't matter that, you know, that it, was, it was just too perfect for the worldview that was wanting to, to slag those boys off, that they had Donald Trump hats on, but they needn't have had the Donald Trump hats. It was that they were white and they were male. Uh, and that was sufficient excuse to, to launch this uh, bullying um, against them on, on social media and not just social media. So, you know, we're used to Twitter and uh, being full of horrible, nasty opinions, but I was struck as I read through the timelines just how many, I'm going to sound like a, one of those conspiracy theorists now, but how many of the blue ticks were joining in? So, you know, validated journalists with millions of readers integrated across their, their followerships were joining in this hounding and vilification yes. of what a short um, investment of time would have demonstrated was an in, an in, in terms of the accusation, an entirely blameless group of, of young people. It made me, it chilled me, it, made, it frightened me um, that this is how far we've got. If you're the wrong, now listen to what I've just had the thought, but I'm about to say, if you have the wrong gender and the wrong skin color, it's too easy for you to find yourself at the end of this sort of campaign of vilification, intimidation. I think the word is doxing, isn't it? When people try to find your private details and ruin your life. Yes. Uh, these were mainstream journalists who did that, not people from the wider tales of the Twitter distribution. Yeah, but it, it should be said that if you're a woman on Twitter, if you're a person of colour on Twitter, you will get really horrible abuse in some circumstances, but not from you know, the um, big name newspapers. And that, that was the frightening thing, as Graham says, is that the people orchestrating this were, weren't sort of awful people skulking in their mother's basements. They were, they were big names. They were big names and trained journalists and, you know, sort of prominent people in the media. And that's extraordinary. And some academics as well, well. <laughs> really, really should have known better but they, they didn't do better. It really to didn't. be. We were all aware the media's in crisis. And, you know, it has an existential crisis. And, you know, do we need a media anymore? If we, if, it's, if we were to have one, you know, if there's to be differentiation between open source publishing through social media and, a, and an industry, a respectable profession of journalism, it is surely that actually the clue is in the word mediation. They they failed in their function to mediate the images that were beaming around the world and, and to do some deconstruction and explain the whole story. Instead, they were acting like the worst um, social media weirdos that they spend their time loftily disdaining. But when it explains is why we need to have them. But it is important at the points that you've both made there that um, it is acceptable when it is white and you know often straight men and Peter when we were talking earlier you were talking about the kind of gammon phenomenon yeah. and, and that falls very nicely into this category as well where it becomes acceptable to behave in this way because your target is a you know in that case kind of more more likely to be a middle-aged white man but but that's somehow okay then too uh, yes yeah, see the, the whole issue of you know gammon as a as a term of abuse is that it is based entirely on someone's age and looks um i mean there's it's despicable i mean it's a despicable slur snowflake is another slur of course but that's more to do with 
behaviour and attitude of being sort of ultra-sensitive or thinking that you're unique, <laughs> um, all of these things. Whereas Gammon is deliberately making fun of someone's appearance just because, you know, as people get older, their, their faces fatten and their skin reddens. But, but I mean, also, it's a snowflake. It's not necessarily assuming that the individual who you're terming a snowflake, you know, you just discount what they think. Whereas if you label someone a gammon, there is a kind of innate, well, because they're a gammon, it's perfectly acceptable for me to just assume whatever they say is just entirely wrong. There yes. is this frenzy which has taken hold of the, that part of the left which supports Corbyn. And these um, repellent terms they come out with are part of that, I think, this the, the seething rage of hatred and, and, and no requirement to interrogate themselves. So because they're so certain that they're on the side of right, then a total war approach can be taken. And if that means inventing a despicable term to be used in order to write off people if they fall into a particular demographic, then that, that seems to be fine. Talking about this particular element of the left, sort of Corbynista, uh, hard left, um, we obviously had the recent example of the backlash against Question Time and Fiona Bruce um, mm. when Diane Abbott was on there. And, you know, we had this quite remarkable accusation of racism on behalf of uh, on the part of, of sorry uh, Fiona Bruce and question time because Diane Abbott had been um, interrupted supposedly a bit more often than the other guests and that Fiona Bruce had uh, made a statement about polling that perhaps mm. you know wasn't entirely could accurate. have been expressed it could have been expressed better I, I happened to see that I don't watch Question Time, I just happened to see that bit. And I did think when I watched it, because there was the poll that day that had the Conservatives in the head, but there was a plethora of other ones that had more or less level pegging or Labour a little point ahead. In the scheme of things, it's nothing. It had nothing to do with what they were talking about. Nothing to do with what they were talking about. But it's effective, isn't it? Imagine if you're a private citizen um, and you want to criticise Diane Abbott and you're sufficiently aware that you've read the newspapers you know that if you do so the entire weight of momentum will come down on you and accuse you of being racist you will think twice before you comment on diane abbott diane abbott's qualities are too obvious to anyone who's even vaguely objective i think it's done deliberately in order to protect her from criticism and i think it's probably effective how we tackle it is that we must have those who can't be silenced that's um, other politicians must confront Labour when they when they do that. It's unspeakable. It's unspeakable to call somebody a racist if they're not racist and they're just saying, I don't agree with what you're saying. There is a flaw in your argument. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth saying that Diane Abbott gets a huge amount of racist abuse. But then to imply that perfectly decent, respectable people, journalists trying to do their job, are the same as the people directing this abuse. That is, that, that, you know, not only is that a libel against the people being accused, it also helps normalise the genuine racism. There is a, a demon, a metaphorical demon, in the soul of um, that part of the left which supports Jeremy Corbyn. I'm not a psychiatrist and I shouldn't try to make windows into people's souls, but it does puzzle me where this great 
hatred comes from. That sort of, I will destroy you, however, whatever verbal means possible, I will destroy you. Disagree with me, you must be a racist. It's, it's an astonishing level of hatred that seems to be swirling around in body politic with no gap. Because I have, I'm a human being. I see images that I dislike, but the point of being an adult is to train yourself to try and have a gap between that um, instinct, that emotional response to think, well, you know, there may well be another explanation for this. I may not know everything. You know. That brings me actually quite nicely onto another piece, uh, Graham, that you wrote for us recently uh, called This Age of Semiotics. Hmm. And essentially what, what, what you're meaning without putting words into your mouth is, is this idea that we see people, we pick up on certain signs and you use the example of um, dyed hair uh, or being a Brexit voter or being vegan or whatever it might be. And we immediately, again, ascribe an ideology, a worldview to that individual and it's a beautifully written piece and i really 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 recommend everyone goes and reads it on both pieces but this one in particular if you haven't but i just wanted to um reflect graham a moment because it, it it's a it's quite a personal piece and, and one of the things that you do in it is sort of recognize your own um at times uh, tendency to look at people and and to do to do that to, mm-hmm. to read the signs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm what I look like a, a middle aged suburban, um, not very deep thinking Tory. Um, and so Keith and I, my husband and I, we go to Brighton most weekends, and nearly every weekend there's a moment. Uh, so a group of young people will be coming along towards us, maybe banging drums and just having fun. And if you watched me, you'd see me sort of tighten up like my role model is Margot Ledbetter I channel quite a lot of Mar- <laughs> Margot Ledbetter and Keith says to me whispers in my ear Brighton Brighton the reason we go to Brighton is to stop me atrophying into this <laughs> Margot Ledbetter who goes through life hating everyone who's a little bit different to him or herself and it's true actually it's one of the great joys of that city it reminds me that it's good to be open-minded and liberal and live and let live is might not sound very profound but it's a pretty good pretty good rule for living and Peter, I suppose one of the most obvious places we can see this now is based on how you voted uh, in the EU Brexit. referendum, exactly. So, uh, Graeme, you have this great paragraph in there. But you say, signs have become our chief political diagnostic. So, yeah. pink hair, vegan, probably a Corbyn supporter, so probably anti-Semitic, safely hated. England flag in window, white working class, probably a Leave voter, so probably a racist, safely hated this this kind of idea of being able to look at someone and go particularly around brexit and particularly voting for brexit Mm. that you did that and therefore you are this awful terrible person yes or conversely if you voted to remain then you're some good you know overprivileged sort of (laughs) nose in the air sort of um, internationalist who hates his own country. You know, it it does work the other way too. Um, But yes, there there is far too much of this. Uh, Part of the world which I know quite well is is West Kent. And there are two towns next to each other called Tunbridge and Tunbridge Wells. A lot of outsiders think they're the same place, but they're not. But if you're an insider, you have a, a sort of image for each town. So Tunbridge is a working town, railway town. Tunbridge Wells, very posh. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very pretty. Now, Tunbridge Wells voted to remain. Tunbridge voted to leave. 
And that would have conformed with everyone's expectations. However, the the margins in each place were 55-45. So actually, <laughs> they, were, they were pretty much the same. It's just these slight shifts, these slight differences. I used, I used to think the referendum, as soon as the referendum occurred, this um, polarised narrative started. And I, I've changed my mind about it. In, in the immediate aftermath, I remember saying, I shouldn't name him, but a politician that, um, Greg and I both, uh, I have just named them, that Peter and I both knew it. I remember saying to him, um, the referendum didn't cause a division. The referendum just made visible uh, a division that hadn't been articulated because nobody was listening. I changed my opinion in the years since. And I do think we now leap to, well, what I wrote in that paragraph, I don't need to watch what you actually do. I don't need to listen to what you specifically say. I don't need to think through the logical consequences of whichever policy you might be promoting. All I need to know is one or two things about you, and that's it. I don't need to think anymore. So apart from this polarisation, which is bad in and of itself, we're not doing enough thinking about politics anymore. We just jump immediately to sign says Brexit equals stop listening, or sign says remain equals snob, so stop listening. It's fascinating as well because people get those signs wrong quite often like I remember in sort of you know months after the referendum and I would have conversations with people and at the time I was working in a think tank um you know I'd go and speak at events and on the whole that's full of you know kind of well-educated often London-based people and you know people would start kind of that sort of negative or you know mm. leave voters uh, and obviously I'm you know relatively young I still like to think uh female educated you know London and I voted leave uh, and people would talk to me and I used to have to stop them and say I just want to let you know before you carry on that I actually voted to leave and it was it was like a physical mm recoil that they would have where they sort of you could see it almost behind their eyes that they were trying to adjust the fact that you know my my vote didn't match the signs they had read and that this was so unpalatable graham you know you must have a similar experience where people assume things about you um by reading signs that actually are are just totally wrong i do get um sometimes i mean people have been kind enough to read stuff i've written more at least a dozen times i've had oh you're scottish when they hear me speaking, and I think, oh, you're reading my piece in a non-Scottish accent. That's great. That's great. What must that be like? Um, but no, I get the, um, you know, when I was growing up, how can you be a conservative? Um, I've been vegetarian for more than 30 years. I get, how can a Tory not want to eat animals? And the homosexuality, of course, not so much now, because it's more or less normalised, except interestingly now, um, you know, growing up, you would have said, oh, uh, gay people would be out of favour with conservative Presbyterian stuff. These days I find that I'm disfavoured by liberal left people because I'm not the right sort of gay person. I don't understand the way LGBTQ politics is going. So all these, all these things are just um, bits, you know, the real Charlotte, the real Peter, the real Graham is an integral over so many different attributes of ourselves that they are, to all intents and purposes, infinite. And yet we seem to have determined that we don't need to wonder about that um, beauty of your ultimately unknowable psychology anymore. I just need to know um, what's your chromosomal makeup, who do you sleep with, how did you vote in the European referendum, and then more or less I can tell you everything 
um, everything you will think about anything. I can remember uh, where I first, well, one of the places I first worked, which was actually Conservative Central Office. And because I am an environmentalist, because I'm a vegetarian, because I'm a Catholic, because of various other things, I can remember someone stopped me and said, Peter, is there anything about you that isn't in some way weird? <laughs> and I thought, no, there isn't, and I'm delighted about that. Um, sorry if that's a problem for you. Well, there we go. I just want to end, as unfortunately we have run out of time, just by reading a paragraph actually from... I see Graham's rolling his eyes at me, uh, but, I, but I do think it's a beautiful paragraph, so I want to read it nonetheless. Graham, you put in, in the piece about semiotics, you say, the solution to this isn't big, but it does require courage. Once, in a more innocent time, all of 30 years ago, my father was driving me down Great Western Road to my student digs in Glasgow, and we passed a green-haired girl pushing her bike up the Kelvin River path. Isn't it great, mused my dyed-in-the-world conservative father, isn't it great that there's space for everyone to be themselves? And I, that's a perfect a way... And I think you can tell, actually, because, you know, certainly I think myself and I know several other people uh, reading it did sort of slightly well up in reading the end because it is beautifully done. But it's a positive note to end on. That actually, if we can just find a little bit more space in ourselves to be accepting and view the world in kind of multicolour and accept that people are going to be different from us, then actually we would go some way in getting past this kind of tribalisation that we are experiencing. So thank you so much for listening. Um, I hope you have enjoyed that discussion. Certainly, we've enjoyed having it. Thank you, Graham, in particular, for coming in uh, and talking to us about these two pieces. Please do read them, unheard.com. And also, obviously, thank you, Peter, as always, for being on the Unheard Shorts. Do subscribe if you haven't already. Do also check out another great podcast we have called Confessions, presented by Giles Fraser. Really wonderful, kind of long-form conversations with fascinating individuals about what makes them tick. And please tune in next time. Mm-hmm.